If you will, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. And I'll just alert you ahead of time to a slight variation in preaching through the four gospel accounts. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2 next week, um, though I, I, I wrestled a lot and that's where I came down. So Mark chapter 1, as we consider how the gospel writers introduce, this, introduce us to Jesus Christ. And I wonder, before we read the word of God, how do you begin a story? Or how do you like a story to begin? Think perhaps of a book you've read recently. What was it about the, the beginning of that story that either drew you in or maybe put you off and maybe you put the book down and you might get back to it or you might not? How does Mark begin his story about Jesus Christ? He begins it with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here, the word of God, I'll read all of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As, is written, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Having heard from God in his word, let's seek him in prayer. Join me in your hearts as I lead. Father, we come to your word. It is a true word, a sure word, and we ask that you might purify us by it. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things, and may we hear not the voice of the preacher, but the voice of God himself speaking by his word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. My encouragement to you this morning as we consider this introduction to Jesus Christ in in Mark's gospel is to be astonished at the gospel and the Savior. Be astonished at the gospel and the Savior. And I want to draw from the text here six ways. There are probably more than that, but six ways in which I think we're, we're called to consider this gospel that may well lead us to astonishment and amazement. Be astonished at the gospel and at the Savior. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you've got to grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark immediately gets to the gospel. The third word in the Greek, the fifth word in our English translations, maybe your English translation is different, but right away he gets to the gospel. Probably, as far as we can tell, this was probably the first written of the New Testament books, and so this was probably the first writing of the word gospel, and Mark gets right to it. But there's there's another word besides gospel. He he uses it three times in this chapter that you probably heard, and it's immediately. (laughs) Mark gets immediately to the gospel, and there's a tone in Mark's gospel of immediacy. It's it's quick, it's rapid, it's brief, and he just goes after it. Uh, The word immediate uh, or immediately occurs 42 times in Mark's gospel and only 17 times in the rest of the New Testament. So I think Mark wants us to hear. My French teacher back in high school would often say, allez vite, 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 come quick, quick, quick. And I think of that when I read Mark's gospel, immediately, immediately, immediately. Now, to to be aware, sometimes it just introduces the next thing that's happening. It's not necessarily indicating every time a rapidity. And yet there is a rapidity of the way that Mark reveals Jesus to us. 
And I think, though it's not in the original, in, it's not in the original languages, I think there's an interesting connection in our English word immediate or immediately. It means without an intermediate, without the intervention of another agency or cause. And the gospel of Christ is that Jesus Christ by himself secured salvation for his people. We come to him as the mediator, but he does his work immediately without anyone else being needed. And what is the gospel? Well, it's good news. You probably know that the word gospel, the Greek word behind it, just means good news or good word or good story. I find it a little bit amusing, and if you say this, I'll probably smile at least on the inside. I'll try not to smile too much on the outside. Or, um, but people say from time to time, and I'm sure that I've said it, the good news of the gospel that's redundant and repetitious, and it says the same thing twice. It's, it's the good news of the good news. It's like your shampoo bottle. Lather, rinse, repeat, and you get stuck in a recursive loop. The gospel is good news. And, and so you don't have to say the good news of the gospel, but it's okay to emphasize it by repeating it. I won't, again, I'll, I'll smile, but, but not, uh, I, I won't make fun of you. And what is the good news? I don't know where I got this definition, but I think it's useful. I've looked to, for the source, and I can't find it. The good news that God the Son, Jesus, became man, lived the perfect life we cannot live, then died on the cross at a place called Calvary as a substitute for all those who repent of their sin and put their trust in him. Jesus rose from the dead as proof that God accepted his substitution and ascended to heaven where he rules everywhere as king. If you want that later, ask me and I'll send it to you. I, I think it's a, a useful definition, probably too long to take down unless you know shorthand. And the Old Testament, as Mark makes clear to us, was preparing the way for Jesus. From way back in Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell and hid from God, and yet God sought them out, and God came to them, and God gave to them punishment for their sin, but he gave them this great promise as he spoke to the serpent who was inhabited by the devil and says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. From that point on, the Old Testament is looking forward to a savior, is looking forward to this good news. We saw last week the prophet Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and will name him Emmanuel. Think of Jacob as he had that dream of the angels ascending and descending. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I do not know it. And then we're told in John's gospel that Jesus says, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus himself being that ladder, that stairway to heaven, if you will. And then here, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as I often uh, call him, it, it, it's not his denomination, it's his action that he's known by. John the Baptizer was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was like the Elijah of old, out in the wilderness, a leather belt, a camel's hair coat. Now, it's kind of cool to wear a camel's hair coat now, but it wasn't 
in his day. And John prepared the way for Jesus. And he preached Christ. And he preached sin and judgment. And his baptism prefigured Jesus' spirit baptism. This is the gospel. And the Old Testament was pointing toward it. Uh, Tim McCracken, some of you perhaps have come across this material. He put together a six-week overview of the Bible, through the Bible in about six hours. And uh, in that, he takes the first five weeks in the Old Testament. And he recounted to me that someone who was attending one of the studies that he was doing, as they were working through the Old Testament, said, someone is coming. Someone is coming. And that is the Old Testament preparing us for this good news that Christ died for sinners like me. So grasp this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, as you, as you want to be astonished at the gospel, own the Jesus Christ of the gospel. Own the Jesus Christ of the gospel. And let me explain that because it might sound odd to you that I would call you to own Christ. But first, let me, let me ask this, whose gospel is it? I find it fascinating that Paul, in his letter to the Romans, begins saying it's the gospel of God. And then very quickly after that, he says it's the gospel of Christ. And then just in chapter 2, and then again in the last chapter, he says it's my gospel. And in that way, it must be your gospel. You must own this gospel for yourself. Not merely as an account that someone told about someone, but as something that you have come to believe. And so that, that expression, own the Jesus Christ of the gospel, when I pastored in Australia, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Australia, their third question in the covenant of membership read this way, do you confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God, acknowledge Jesus Christ as your savior as he is offered in the gospel, do you own him as your Lord and dedicate yourself to his service? And then it goes on from there. And my American brain, or maybe just my small brain, when I first heard that, thought that was an odd phrase. Do I own him as my Lord? And yet, I think we understand what it means, and I came to understand what it means. It's I really do claim him as my Lord. And there's a sense in which for me to own Christ as my Lord means that I freely give myself to him that he might own me as his servant. And you must own the Jesus Christ of the gospel. He is God's beloved son. That's how we're introduced to him here. And he comes to John to be baptized as John is baptizing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and some of the other gospel accounts recognize that John said, I, I don't get it. Why do I need to baptize you? And there's a lot of discussion about why, but it, we can ask the question, did Jesus need a baptism of repentance? And we have to ander, answer with a resounding no, but, but I believe that he submitted to this baptism of repentance as he identifies fully with those for whom he would die, as he identifies fully with sinners like you and me. He is the Holy One of God, the eternal Son of God. He is, as we find in other places in the scripture, the elder brother of all who trust his salvation, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Some of you are brother or sister to someone who probably at various times has been ashamed to call you brother or to call you sister. 
And yet Jesus is not ashamed. And in him, we are brothers of each other and of Jesus himself. And when we read that God said about Jesus, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, we know that God is well pleased with us in Christ. That when we own the Jesus Christ of the gospel, when he is our Savior and Lord, God says about you and me, I am well pleased with you. And then this Jesus goes on to defeat Satan's temptation. Though Mark doesn't give us those details, he just tells us that Jesus was tempted. But we know from the other gospel accounts that he repeatedly defeated Satan's temptation as he quoted and committed himself to the word of God. And in him, that is in Jesus, we too can defeat Satan's temptations. If you are in Christ, you are no longer powerless to give in to sin and temptation. There are times, if we could, that we would take the place of another. Maybe in their sickness, I can remember that, uh, especially as a, as a young father with my children. I, I ached for them when they were sick and wished I could have been sick instead of them, though it probably wouldn't have been a pleasant thing. When my wife faced surgery, I wished that I could have taken that pain instead of her. At times, we would substitute for another, but we can't. And that often makes us feel helpless, but Jesus did. He did take the place of another, of me and of you, of all who acknowledge him as Savior and own him as Lord. And so I ask, do you own him as your Lord? And that will be seen as you submit to the gospel. The gospel, this good news, is never merely good news. It's never merely a good story. It's not even just a historical reality. It always comes with a command. Repent and believe the gospel. And we can repeat that command, though not from our own authority. When our children were young, and I talk about my children a lot, it's just part of how I learned what life is about. When they were young, sometimes we would say, you know, go, go call your brother Zachary to come inside. And they would go to the door and say, Zachary, come inside. And we would call them to ourselves and say, no, what you need to say is Zachary, dad says to come inside. Or Zachary, mom says to come inside. They speak not with their own authority, but with our authority. And so we speak with the authority of Christ as we command people to repent and believe the gospel. We, we don't have to be afraid of calling people to obey Christ. Now, we don't know who will and when they will and if they will, but in a sense, let them decide. <laughs> oh, they won't believe. I don't want to ask them to repent and believe the gospel. Let them decide. As we believe this good news, so we too can command it. Jesus commands that you repent and believe this good news. Paul says to the Corinthians that those who do not love the Lord Jesus, let them be accursed. And I think when we think about unbelievers around them, and maybe you're hesitant, you know, if I command them to repent and believe the gospel, what are they going to think about me? Well, I don't know what they're going to think about you, but what's going to happen to them if they don't repent and believe the gospel? And we don't always have to say it as a command. It's, Jesus is often given, is, is presented as an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So there's both command and invitation, but this, this gospel does come with a command, and you and I must submit 
to it. So if you have submitted to the gospel, if you own the Jesus of the gospel, if you grasp what the gospel is all about, then you will partner in the gospel with Jesus Christ. You will partner in the gospel with Jesus Christ. Follow me, Jesus says. And we're going to look in more detail at that section this evening, verses, uh, verses 16 through 20. But will you follow him? Are you following him? Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, are you following Jesus? Well, I don't even know what that means. Well, sorry, but it makes me wonder if you're really a Christian. Now, maybe you're a baby Christian and you're learning what that means. I understand that. But if you are Christ, you will follow him. It's humorous and pleasant when children follow their parents. We were on the video call with our daughter Maria a few weeks ago, and Mabel, who's going to be two in February, was wearing her daddy's shoes. I'm trying to literally follow in her daddy's footsteps. And the shoes were too big, and the steps were too big, but there was a willing, persevering effort to follow. And so must there be in you and in me, a willing, persevering effort to follow Jesus. You may feel inadequate. You may feel like you can't do it. And yet the gospel is that you can. In Christ, you can follow him. And notice again the immediacy of that following. Jesus calls to Simon and Andrew, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Well, we know why that is. Jesus tells us in John's gospel, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, and they follow me. If you're not following Jesus, you can't claim to be his. And what does Jesus say? He says, I'll make you fish for men. What he means is I'll make you fish for sinners. And fish can be smelly, but sinners can be smellier. So are you following? And are you fishing? And one of the ways that you and I, that everyone can do this fishing is to proclaim this gospel. It's fascinating to me that at the end of this chapter, and it's, it occurs other times in the gospel accounts, Jesus explicitly tells those whom he, he ministers to, and here he healed a man from leprosy, do not tell anyone. But the man went and proclaimed it widely. And we might think, oh, well, you know, that was a good thing because he really wanted people to know about Jesus. No, it wasn't a good thing. He disobeyed the Savior of the world. He disobeyed the King of the universe. And so we ought not excuse that, but we are not told to not tell anyone about Jesus. We can proclaim, and it's, it's interesting to me that the word it uses here to talk freely about it as it's translated in the ESV, often it's translated, he went and proclaimed it widely. And that word proclaim is often used of the, the ordained leadership of the church who are given the particular task of preaching the gospel. And yet here, it's used of one who simply wants to tell everyone what Jesus has done for him, and so you and I can do that. We can tell everyone what Jesus has done for us. And one of the reasons that we're awkward about telling sinners about what Jesus has done is because we're inexperienced at telling each other what Jesus has done. I've encouraged you before. I'll encourage you again. What do you talk about after the sermon? We'll talk about it. By, be bygone. And let the things of the week ahead come as they will, but talk with each other. 
about this gospel. Talk with each other about this good news so that you might be better practiced at talking about Jesus so that when you are with unbelievers, you're more inclined to talk with them. And maybe you hear this and you think it's just it's too hard. I'm weak and powerless to proclaim this message as I seek to partner with Jesus. Well, then exult in the power of the gospel. Exult in the power of the gospel. Notice what we have here, the authority in Jesus' teaching. They were astonished. They were dumbstruck. We might say it in our day, get out of here. No way. That's the the kind of sense with which they were responding to Jesus' authority and his teaching. And then that wasn't enough. He controlled the evil spirits. He cast out demons. And they were amazed. The word could be translated terrorized. And we read it and we move on. Oh, I've read that before. We're too often not astonished, not amazed at the power of the gospel and the power of our Savior. Had two different, very interesting conversations yesterday afternoon that that reminded me of this text. They were both at Josh and Julia Mann's neighbor, Paul and Carol, for whom many of you prayed. They're the uh, uh, Jill's kids were doing, their piano students were doing a little recital. And so in, in the conversation afterwards, there were two different things that came up. Paul, it turns out, has been in the IT area since 1968. He's pretty amazed at what has changed in, in his years of being aware of IT type stuff. And he's retired now, but he said, you know, the power on my Apple Watch, I, I hated to add an Apple Watch, but <laughs> the power on my watch would have in those days, if it could have been, if, if we could have harnessed that power, would have been in, in, in a three refrigerator sized box. And just in talking about it, he was amazed. But we're not amazed anymore. I mean, you young people, you, you've been around computers and phones, and you know, there's more power in your phone. There's more computing power in your phone than in the computers that put men on the moon. But we don't think about it. Now, I'll say this. I don't care if you're amazed at technology. And technology sometimes fails greatly. But I just thought it was interesting how this man who'd been in this industry all his life was still amazed at the differences that have happened. And then the other was the beauty of the mountains here. See, we're new, and they're amazing to us. Um, Be careful if you're driving with us, because we might watch the mountains instead of the road. Um, You can offer to drive if you'd like. But some, and I don't remember who it was that said it, who've been here a lot longer than we have, said they're still amazing. They're still beautiful. And I hope that's the way you feel when you look at these mountains. That's the way we feel every time. They're different. They're amazing. But even more than that, I hope that you're amazed at the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. It has within it a power to change lives. It has the power that has and is changing you. Think about what you once were. And sometimes we tell some of those stories to each other, but there are things in what we once were that we will never tell anyone. 
because we're so ashamed of the sin in which we lived in when, in when we were dead before God made us alive with Christ Jesus. That power is at work in you and me today. What does Paul say to the Ephesians? He encourages them with these words, that to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul often, when he confronts the amazing power of God, breaks into doxology as he does there. That power is at work. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you today and will be at work in you tomorrow. And so be amazed, be astonished at the power of the gospel. And how did Jesus have such power? Well, we, we, the easy answer, well, he was God. But in some mysterious way that I don't, I don't get and I can't clearly understand and explain, he learned the things that he learned. He learned obedience through his practice of obedience. And how did he get such power? Well, one hint that Mark gives us is early in the morning he got up and prayed. Now, I don't mean by that to suggest that if you pray late at night, you're not going to have power from God. But I would suggest that you imitate your Savior and spend time with your Father and His Father and ask for power and ask for boldness and ask for clarity and ask for wisdom and ask for help. And He will give it. And that power is continuing to work in you. And so exult in the power of the gospel. And then lastly, as I call you to be astonished at the gospel and at the Savior, listen to the preaching of the gospel. Listen to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus came to preach, we're told, and all were coming to him. They were coming to him from every quarter. I don't know if that means north, south, east, and west. It means they were all coming, and they were coming to hear him. And they came to hear the gospel. And let me urge you to come to hear the gospel. As you read the scripture in your private worship, listen for the gospel and listen to the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself as you're reading it. And as you come together as families to worship God and your families, listen to the gospel and listen for the gospel. And as you come to corporate worship, never tire of hearing the gospel preached and preach it to yourself. If I stand in this pulpit or another pulpit before you and I don't preach the gospel or you don't think I preach the gospel, please ask me about it. I hope it means you just missed it, but it might mean that I missed it. And if I miss the gospel, I'm not preaching Christ. It's too often that a preacher may give a theological lecture or a set of moralistic instructions and forget about the gospel. And if you ever think that that's what I've done, I, I urge you to confront me about that. When I was taking a, a class many years ago at Covenant Seminary from uh, Brian Chapel in their Doctor of Ministry program, um, Brian, it was a preaching class, and he, he, Dr. Chapel talked about um, a sermon that he would regularly play for his, his seminary students in their, in their preaching class. And he would ask them to evaluate this sermon, and is this, a, is this a gospel center, is this a Christian sermon? And it was from Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up 
in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And he would listen to the sermon, and then they would evaluate. And he said, is this a Christian sermon? And then he would identify the speaker. It was the head of the Mormon tabernacle in St. Louis, the second largest Mormon tabernacle, in the, at least in the U.S. And he would say resoundingly, no, this was not a Christian sermon. He said some biblical things. He said even some helpful things. How might you exasperate your children? What sort of things should you not do so you don't exasperate your children? But if it's not undergirded with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ saves sinners like you and me, it's not a gospel sermon. Now, sometimes preachers have a little gospel sermon commercial each sermon. And I don't think we have to do that, though I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think the gospel should permeate whenever we read the scripture, whenever we preach the scripture. And my desire is that my testimony to you might be the same as Paul's testimony to the Corinthians when he said this, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And if you don't think that's true of me. You didn't see me before the installation service a week ago, <laughs> Friday night. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Might that be my testimony to you? And might Paul's testimony about the Thessalonians be your testimony to Colorado Springs? As he says, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. May that be your testimony to this community in which God has placed us to be astonished about the Savior and to be astonished about the gospel. Please pray with me that God would make it so. Our Father in heaven, fill us with wonder and amazement at the gospel itself, at the Savior who is at the heart of the gospel, at the power of the gospel that is at work within us, at the power of, God, of the gospel by which we might proclaim, even in weakness and fear and trembling, repent and believe to those around us. And we pray that we would continue to see the gospel working in us, changing us to be more like our Savior. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name.